Thank you, Roy, for those words of introduction. <clears throat> and can I add to the welcome that you've already received? I wonder, were you lucky enough to watch the television extravaganza, the grand finale, the spectacle of Christopher Biggins being crowned the king of the jungle and I'm a celebrity, get me out of here. Love it or hate it, reality TV is here to stay. Personally, I can't stand it. But there's some sick, voyeuristic part of me that just draws me in, and especially to I'm a celebrity. I find it fascinating how human nature, when stripped away of all the worldly comforts, reveals who we really are. Watching the celebrities unravel and show their true personalities, who they really are, what their values are, all their eccentricities, their civility just goes out the window. It just reminds me of that book, The Lord of the Flies. The young boys, or in this case the celebrities, quickly resort to primitive man. So what's the relevance with reality TV and a Sunday evening sermon? Well, I was thinking of producing a new reality TV show. I'm a Christian. Get me out of here. Now, this is probably not a new idea, but just imagine it. Ten random members of the congregation of all ages, placed in the jungle, away from their friends and family, no worldly comforts, no Bible, no TV, no makeup. Now, how do you think you would stand up to the scrutiny? Would your Christian values shine through? Would you demonstrate love, kindness, service? Or would you quickly resort to gossip, anger, bitterness and envy? Would your Christian values crumble? And all the world would realise that you're a fraud. I'm a fraud. Get me out of here. I think it would be really interesting. Not necessarily the best television viewing. But it would be a reality check for who we are, what we stand for, and the depths of our convictions. Tonight, I'm not going to talk about reality TV, but reality Christianity, or being a Christian in the real world. Fortunately, now we can find some directions in the book of 1 John. In chapter 2 of John, he gives us guidelines about living as a Christian in the real world. So, if you'd like to look up page 1225 of the Pew Bibles, or 1 John chapter 2, and we're looking particularly at verses 3 through to 17. We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys his word... God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. Dear friends, I am not writing you a new commandment, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard. Yet I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and you, because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother lives in the light, and there is nothing in him to make him stumble. 
But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. He does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded him. I write to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you have known the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. Now, I'll be totally honest with you at this point. I find John's writing very convoluted. It's as though he writes something, then writes it again later in a slightly different way. So to help us with understanding, it's very important to put this book into context. Chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, sets out John's credentials. John was reared a Jew. He became an apostle. He walked and talked with Christ. He saw his miracles, heard him teach, and watched him die. He then met the risen Lord and watched him ascend into heaven. John knew Christ. John knew God. He had first-person, real-life contact with Jesus. Now, Tim mentioned this morning that the New Testament church was being plagued with difficulties. And this letter was directed to church members, just like you and I. So as in real life, those members were having real problems, just like you and I. Now, one of the real-life problems they were facing was the increasing numbers of false teachers. Some of these false teachers were even ex-members of the church. So if we look at chapter 2, verse 19, it says, They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. John was compelled to write about what it meant to be a real Christian in the real world, giving his real or first-hand experience. Now, as Tim said it this morning, why did he do it, as in chapter 1, verse 4? It says, to make our joy complete. Now, while he was telling us, it just made me think of a bumper sticker. I don't know if you may remember them. A dog is for life, not just for Christmas. Well, being a Christian is for life. It's not just for Christmas. Being a Christian is a lifestyle choice that should shape us and direct our very being. So, a mental overview of chapter 2. It can be broken into three parts. The first part concentrates on your relationship with God. The second part talks about spiritual maturity. And the third part looks at the world's view. Or in this case, and if you don't mind stretching the analogy too far... Instead of bush tucker trials, we'll have spiritual trials. So part one, your relationship with God. When I think about relationships, I remember young love. Boys and girls being teased for centuries in the playground. Well, are you going out with Simon? Giggle, giggle. Simon, are you going out with Sarah? Giggle, giggle. Half the time, Simon didn't even know he was going out with Sarah until he was dumped. 
But for some Christians, our relationship with God is exactly the same. Sometimes we don't even realize we're in a relationship. For a good relationship with God, you need secure foundations. And now one of the foundations of our relationship with God is actually knowing that you are saved. It was important for the New Testament believers to know that they were saved because they had just heard all about sin in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. This morning we heard that believers do sin and we go on sinning again and again. It's normal to struggle with sin, but we can have assurance in our worldly struggles. Verse 1 and 2 we're talking about sin And at this point, the New Testament readers were probably feeling a little bit low about themselves and may have even questioned if they were ever really saved. So how do you know that you're saved? If I were to do a survey in the centre of Belfast and ask members of the public, what does it mean to be saved? I suspect there'd be some strange looks and a lot of different answers. If I started to ask you, the congregation, what it means to be saved, I suspect I'll get the odd stock phrase answer such as, Someone who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ as Saviour and Lord. You might even give me a biblical quote like John 3.16. You might even sound confident whenever you say it. Now in John's time they were having problems with church members leaving. Clearly that's not a new problem. Because if you start to think about your school friends, university friends, work colleagues or even previous organisation leaders within the church... Where are they now? They could have quoted John 3.16 to me. I'm sure at the time they sounded very confident in their salvation. In fact, through their witness and testimony, people have probably come to know Christ. But why did they fall by the wayside? Did they simply drift away? Were they misinformed? Or did they abandon Christ? Or maybe their beliefs were only superficial. And they assumed that they were Christians but weren't really. It's natural to doubt. It's natural to feel insecure. It's natural even to question and seek evidence. So how did they know they were saved? Well, we heard heard this morning of walking in the light. As we walk in the light, we see things the way God sees them. Our whole lifestyle, our goals, our focus... Our whole way of life is transformed when we begin our walk with God. The example was given of a plant being drawn by the light to the window. Our whole attitude, the way we talk to people, how we approach life, changes. If you look up 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, it says this, <clears throat> But if anyone does not have them, then he is short-sighted and blind and has forgotten that he has been cleansed from sins or from his past sins. Therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure, for if you do these things, you will never fail. Peter was talking about the gifts of the Spirit. Some Christians can't remember they're saved. They lack confidence due to their lack of faith, knowledge, self-control, patience, godliness, brotherly kindness, love. Maybe we lack confidence because the direction we walk does not result in fellowship with God. The manifestation of godly works in our lives assures us 
that something has transformed us. If we don't see the gifts of the Spirit, we question whether any change has taken place. If those qualities are in our lives, we can have security, security of knowing that we were saved. So if it was you that was placed in the jungle with nine others, what qualities would you manifest? The second foundation of our relationship with God is fellowship. In verses 3 through to 6, John demonstrates how fellowship with God and knowing God are synonymous. As we get to know God better, our fellowship should improve. Put simply, knowing God gives rise to obedience. You know that you know God if you obey him. And therefore the duty as a result of this is that we walk like Jesus. Verses 3 through to 6. If you know God, you will be obedient. If you are being obedient, you will have assurance that you know God. It was the outpouring of that knowledge, uh, walking with Jesus. The evidence of our fellowship with God is that we obey him. Just like the assurance of our salvation, we should notice a change in our lifestyle. Obedience, too, is a way of life. Obedience is not just for Sundays or not just for Christmas. Obedience is not just a hollow adherence to a checklist or a set of rules like a recipe in a cookbook or directions even as if we were reading a map. We cannot map obedience to God to the last detail or life loses its character. Every problem in life becomes an obstacle course that must be overcome. Obedience ceases to be a response. It's like being back at school. Do you want me to memorize it? Or do we need to understand it? If we understand obedience, we understand fellowship and walking like Jesus. Jesus came that we can have life and live it to the full. John 10.10 If we are bogged down in rules, Christianity becomes sterile and dull. Jesus took risks. We can take risks too. Now, we have, now we've built basically two very firm foundations in our relationship with God. We've got salvation and we've got fellowship. Now the thing that connects the two, or a platform, as you've got a mental image here, is love. <clears throat> in verses 7 through to 11, John is talking about love. He makes reference to John chapter 13, verse 34, where it says, A new commandment I give unto you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. When we obey this command to love, we give evidence of living in the light. Jesus was the very example of love, and his was a very different view from the Jewish experience in the Torah. Jesus demonstrated this new love by service and sacrifice. He put on a towel, got down on his hands and knees, and washed the feet of the disciples. What an example of love. What an example of service, sacrifice, forgiveness and grace. I remember what happened next in that particular evening. Not long after Jesus had washed the feet of his disciples, they started to bicker amongst each other as who was the greatest. Bickering amongst believers. Bickering amongst our brothers and sisters in Christ. This must have been such a common problem that John had to remind his readers about it. I'm sure there's none of that going on in this church. So when we're in the jungle, if we're one of the ten, and all our worldly comforts are removed, 
what will we be left with? We should have the assurance of salvation. We should demonstrate knowledge and fellowship with God through obedience. And we should be an example of love to our fellow jungle goers through service and sacrifice. What a relationship with God. And what a stable platform that we will have in our life that we can tackle any trial that is thrown at us. Now John moves on to three verses where he appears to say the same thing twice. The purpose of this section, I think, is spiritual maturity. If we have a real-life relationship with Christ, then John is not content for us to stand still, but he encouraged us to walk like Jesus or get to know Jesus better, as when we're not able to stand still, we have to walk with him. Now, just in case you're wondering why he said it twice, I have absolutely no idea. This has baffled scholars for centuries, but personally, I think he repeated it just to encourage us, as in repetition aids learning. So John probably used the three stages of life to characterize the spiritual maturity of believers. As children, they had known forgiveness and were at the beginning of their, uh, of their walk with God. As young men, they had experienced some spiritual battles. and As fathers, they knew fellowship with God and were encouraged to know him better. These, these verses demonstrate an ongoing process, a developing or a spiritual maturity. John encouraged the believers to press on and to get to know the Lord better. So why do we need this stable platform? And why do we need to press on? I think at the beginning of our lives, our platform is very sort of shaky. It's very unstable. But as our spiritual maturity grows, our platform gets a wee bit bigger and a bit more stable. But like I said, we need this platform because we're going to face trials. Spiritual trials or bush tucker trials. The biggest trial we face is our relationship with the world. Up to now, we've been concentrating on a stable relationship with God, with our foundations of assurance and fellowship and a platform of love. We need this stable platform because without it, the ability to face trials is very different. Just imagine it. If you've got a lot of assurance, but you don't live out your life for God, your platform's going to be unstable. If you're not sure about your assurance, but you certainly have a lot of fellowship with God, your platform's going to be unstable. If your whole... whole Uh, spiritual maturity isn't very big you've got not much to stand on so if we face any trial in life any difficulties we face or we face we need stability in order that we can face that problem and take it on head on if our platform's skewed if it's unstable then any problems that we face we're going to have a real struggle and resisting the appeal of the world is difficult for me for you and for everybody it's the biggest struggle that we're going to have. Worldliness affects our external behaviour and it affects our internal behaviour. Externally, it affects where we go, who we associate with, and the activities we enjoy. Those things might indicate that I'm not a very worldly person. But internally, what about the internal behaviours? What would our hearts give away about us? Our hearts give away three attitudes, as mentioned in the text. The cravings of sinful men, the lust of his eyes, the boasting of what he has and does. These three attitudes are usually interpreted as gratifying physical desires, the accumulation of things, and status and importance. In other words, 
What does the world value? The world values hedonism, materialism, and egotism. God does not value these things. By contrast, God values self-control, a spirit of generosity, and a commitment to humble service. As as Christians, we can give the impression of avoiding worldly uh, pleasures, while we still harbour worldly attitudes in our hearts. If we walk like Jesus, we can love sinners, spend time with them, and maintain a commitment to God's values. Do our actions and do our thoughts reflect the world's values? Because if we're loving the world, we're not loving God. So in our egotistical, hedonistic, materialistic world, if we're moved from that reality to a very different reality, would our value system fall apart? Is our faith based on firm foundations of assurance and fellowship? Do we have a stable platform through the love of God that we might sort of mature as Christians and tackle any of the difficulties the world might throw at us? I ask you. If there's anything that I've said tonight that struck a chord and you wish to discuss it further, please don't hesitate to contact myself or one of the elders afterwards. Or if you are a Christian and you struggle with insecurity and doubt, let us know that we might pray with you. Amen.